gave it to a professional editor to read and she loved it. And so she gave me a reader's report. And I advise a lot of people to do this because when you send it off, you only send off the first chapter, whereas I paid her to read the whole thing and tell me, what do you think? She said, I think it sits in that sweet spot between literary and commercial. And so she was very encouraging and it was really uplifting. And lucky for me, she then mentioned it to a publisher at a book launch. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Welcome everyone to Rights for Women. My name is Cassie Hamer and I'm the author of three women's fiction novels, including The Truth About Faking It. But I'm thrilled to be speaking today with debut Australian author Diane Yarwood, who has just released her novels, The Wakes, a book which has now been already optioned for TV by the same company that made the TV version of Big Little Lies, which is just amazing. Diane, this was such a beautiful book. It was funny. It was heartfelt. It was moving. It was all things I love. Congratulations. How are you feeling? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm just feeling wonderful. It's it's a joyful experience. So some of the dream has landed when it hit the bookshelves of the bookshops. It's something I've wanted to do since I was a teenager and it's so worth working on a dream because it's a marvellous feeling. I'm loving every minute of it. Oh, that is so lovely to hear. And this is your debut. Professional background, I understand, in accounting and corporate advisory roles. So such sensible occupations, what on earth possessed you <laughs> to enter into the madness of writing a book? Oh, it, there's a lot involved in that in the answer. But basically, I did probably take a role turn I left school I my mother died in my final year of school and it was my safety net was gone the world was taken out from underneath me and I loved English but I was quite good at economics as well and so when it came down to the choice I was a bit cautious and after the safe path I had to support myself so writing seemed a little bit scary financially so I took the more sensible career path. And to be honest, I want to shoot the myth out of the water about accounts being boring because they're not. Very entertaining and fun people I found. And even though accounting wasn't a natural fit for me, I really enjoyed the workplace. And it took me to London and Europe. I got a good income. I was a, and so I stayed in it for a lot longer than I probably would have if it was just about the work. So that, and also I loved music and I played the piano a lot when I was young and I think music and accounting, it's very passion-based mm-hmm. and my writing is even quite rhythmic. I like the flow of a sentence, so they, they, there is some sort yeah, of cross-energies. Yeah. Yes, so I stayed in accounting for about 15 years and then I left to have my children and I loved being at home with children. I just really took to that. So when I was at home, my creative outlet was food and quite obsessed with food. Then when I was 40, I came very close to dying. I was sick for about a year. And by the time it 
really started this disease. It's a rare autoimmune disease called Addison's disease. Jane Austen, they think, died of it, which being a literary person, I get a strange sort of pleasure from knowing. <laughs> but so you gradually get sick. The disease attacks your adrenal glands. So you gradually lose the energy to live, both physically and mentally. And then a crisis is what kills you. And I was in that crisis and I was within days of dying. And I knew I was dying. I'd accepted I was dying. I we tried, I'd been to my GP regularly. I even went to an endocrinologist who was in that field of my disease mm. and he missed it. So that's how it's rare. And mm. so I felt like I'd tried everything. I'd been to emergency and triaged right down the bottom. So this day I decided I was dying when I woke up. I didn't even think to go to emergency because I thought I'd been there. So I was very mentally fatigued and I even rang my GP at eight in the morning when he got into work and said, Paul, I'm going to die today. And just, I, it's exactly what I said to him, which really did quite freak him out. But it was bland the way I delivered it. I, it was just a fact for me. And I wanted to die in a way because I was just too sick. I was too weak to exist. Um, I did want out really. And, but he said, you've got to go back to emergency. And I said, well, I've been there. Mm. And he said, no, you have to go back. And he rang ahead. But that day there was a doctor on who's seen my disease once before. So I was very lucky. Gosh. And she, and I'll never forget it. I was curled in a fetal position in the bed. And she leant down and said to me, I think I know what's wrong with you. <sighs> and it was just, it took them a few hours to confirm it. And that the treatment for the disease, it's a chronic disease. I take medication every day, but. It's very manageable, and but the treatment was an intravenous injection of steroid because your adrenal glands produce cortisol and mine weren't producing it. So I went from, and it's immediate almost, the effects. I went from dying, accepting it, to full of life, and it's something I will never forget. And to digress a little bit, that is the feeling I want to, I wanted to give you when you finish the book. I wanted to give you an idea of how I felt. Which is why I wrote about death to write about life because we learn so much from opposites. And I just felt that that was that juxtaposition of death and life had such a profound impact on me and still does. Where was I going with telling um, you? So anyway, getting towards like yeah, you, the catalyst moment where you've nearly died. Yes. Suddenly think, hmm, what happened I've done with my life? Exactly. And I even started writing. In my hospital bed, I wrote a film script for a short film for my brother-in-law's 40th. And that was the time when I thought, and, I, and because it was autoimmune, I didn't really trust my body, even though I was happy to be alive. I thought this could turn any day on me. So I had a very strong sense of life's fragility and how finite and short life is. And so we thought, wow, that thing you wanted to do, the writing a novel, you better get going. And even that took me a little while. To, and it took me a while to do it. But when I researched this, the one thing that people most say when they're on the brink of dying is to tell, they want to tell people they love them. But the other thing is regrets, the thing you wish you'd done. And that, and a novel for me was that. that it mm -hmm. would, I knew without a doubt it would be the thing I'd be thinking, why didn't you give that a go? Why didn't you have the courage? So I think a lot of it was courage. What have I got to say? Will my writing be good enough? And I'd lost all fear of that because I just thought, why not? And so I did. And so that was, that was the big turning point for me. It took a while to, to get writing into the 
number one thing in my life. It took a back seat still, even but the dream had been reignited. I'd forgotten about it in the middle of the accounting mothering. But it's quite an extraordinary story, Diane. There's so much in that about so much in it. Discovering the meaning of life and one's yes. purpose. And I'm wondering the book that you or what you started working on in the wake of that near death experience. Is that the book that we're reading today? Oh, no, it's not. And I love you, the way you just use the wake, the word wake in the wake of that experience, because that when I use the title of the wakes, it's not just referring to the funerals. It's referring to in the wake of traumatic events or the wake we leave behind. Those but no, I started writing and first of all, I started writing a cookbook with little journal things in it. That was my way because I knew food inside out. I had become quite obsessed. And then I, after a year or so, I realized it was the writing I preferred to the recipes. I thought, no, I just want to write. So it all just took a while. So I was sick when I was 40. By the time I was 50, I'd written this book. And I was so proud of it. I thought it was marvelous. And what a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. But I sent it to a couple of agents and you got lovely rejections. They didn't, they weren't the sort of rejections that make you think, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but they still weren't picking it up. So I gave it to a manuscript assessor. I paid $150 for an hour of quite brutal critique. And the end result of that was she said to me, you've got three books in one. There's so much going on here. That was a bit traumatic because I could see all those years of work just disappearing. And, and I was also, there was a fair bit of me in that book, masquerading as fiction. She gave me some great advice. She said to me, this thread, is that you? And I said, yep. And she said, either write a memoir or get yourself out of this book. And why was I that? Had, what was wrong? Because I, I often feel as an author, I do put a lot of myself and my own experiences into the book and that's what gives it the authenticity and the believability. Yes. And do you know what? After having taught myself to write a novel, I think there's two prongs to that. There's the situation where you shoehorn in your own life and then there's the situation where it appears organically. And I think in the first one, I was shoehorning myself in. It, it didn't fit. But I thought, wow, this is a something I really want to write about. So I put it in the novel regards. Whereas with, my, with The Wakes, I, I set out to write pure fiction. But of course, bits and pieces of my own life or my friends or conversations appear because as I'm writing, they just seem so such a good depiction of a situation mm, mm, mm. but it's not their first life story yeah oh not at all yeah. but I agree with you. you your life does enter it but in my first one I think it was it was just mm. it wasn't working too much it was too manufactured getting me in there but that so, book sits yeah. in a bedside table right so you and that won't ever see the light of day yeah and most of us have that practice novel it, mm. it takes most mm. authors one or two ten mm. twenty manuscripts to the one that is the one so we haven't really discussed actually what the wakes is about and we've alluded to it a little bit but we probably should, should address that a little bit so that the conversation has a bit more context you mentioned about your near-death experience. The book is called The Wakes. There is a fair bit about death and dying, but it's an extremely life-affirming book. So I'm just wondering if you can give us a quick pricey of who our main characters are and how we find them at a turning point in their lives. Okay, so the main story is a small group of strangers who whose lives become increasingly intertwined 
in a cluster of funerals one spring. They're all in their 40s. They're in the middle of their lives. And when we meet them, their lives aren't what they thought they'd be. We've got a couple of marriages on the brink of collapse. So our two female main characters, Camille and Louise, to meet a little way into the novel. How much do I give away? Yeah, it's tricky because your, your yes. structure is very interesting. You I don't want to get to the end yes. of the book and then you go backwards. But essentially yes. where the timeline of the book p- picks up is where Claire's marriage is falling apart. Mm. She happens to befriend Louisa mm. who's living in the same street. Mm. Mm. And what unfolds from that is a bit of an unexpected friendship. Yes, it's a, it's a bit of a lovely letter to friendship, my novel, I think. Their friendship. And so they perform this funeral catering business. And, and through that, they see death from an everyday, ordinary point of view and quite quirky, very yeah. quirky business, quite humorous. Humor is very important to me. I think it's one of the best things in life. So I can't write without humor. And I think I wanted to have that combination of humor and sadness, joy and sorrow, because it just reflects life. So even though I'm writing about death. So from the epigraph from Virginia Woolf, which was just so perfect for my book, it's from one of her diaries where she was writing and she said, I meant to write about death, but life came breaking in as usual. And it was very much, I, when I sat down to write, it was death I wanted to write about because I'd had a fair bit of death to deal with in my life. I think I needed to work through it. But when I was writing about death, life just, it became more about life than death. But I'm not afraid of dying. So it's, that's my perspective on death that I'm writing about. So that's why I think it ends up being so uplifting. But so we also have our male character, Chris, an emergency doctor. It's also a love letter to emergency doctors. They say one saved my life, and I'm quite in awe of what they do. And he's a very different character to the women. He's got a little bit of an ego. He he's which he's dealing with in terms of how he sees life, how he looks at where he is in his life, that he wants to be remembered. He's having trouble having children, and he sees children as a way of being remembered. And it's how he sort of develops and becomes a little don't want to give I don't, I don't know <laughs> no it's hard it's hard giving away but you see them change the funerals have a profound impact on them one thing I loved about Chris and something you mentioned before was that this is a sort of a love letter to friendship and mm. parts of the book I really loved was Chris's friendship with Max yes yeah. so Max is his friend who has terminal cancer and what you do so beautifully is that you acknowledge the sort of absurdity of life and death and dying. And there's this moment in the book between Max and Chris where Max is very unwell and he's talking to Chris and he's telling Chris that his wife has this harebrained notion of organizing them on a trip to Africa because she wants <laughs> to speak off some things on the bucket list. And Max <laughs> says words to the effect of, what bit doesn't she understand? I'm dying. I'm not going on a trip to Burkina Faso. <laughs> and they have a bit of a laugh over that. Yes. And yes. I love that sort of understanding the absurd nature of death and the moment mm. of joy and levity and intimacy mm. and connection. So obviously humour is something, because death is weird, I, when I say I'm not afraid of dying, I'm still, I'm not saying I understand it or it's just a very unusual 
difficult thing. And so I think we deal with these sorts of difficult, unwieldy, weird things with humour and it makes it, it gives it a something that we can grasp. And so I, yes, I loved that they were sympathetic of each other, Max and Chris, and I loved their friendship. I've had such wonderful feedback about Max and people just love him, even though he's not on the page a lot. He's not there for very necessarily for a long time, but he seems to have a great impact on people. I think so, he goes he goes about his death in such a beautiful and pragmatic way. And yes. And what I especially loved was that it was a male friendship, which is not mm, something mm. that you often see written about. And no. Chris himself acknowledges that he hasn't always been the best or closest friend to Max, but he really puts in a huge effort towards the end. And I'm mm. just interested when you talk about saying that you're not afraid of dying. So many people are afraid of it. So I'm wondering what's your perspective and what do you think you understand about it that that you didn't perhaps previously? I think just having got so close to it and it wasn't fear that I felt. There was sad. I also had mental fatigue. So I can't really explain leaving my children and not being in more of a state. I, I obviously... That's an issue for me, but just to give you an example, the weekend, I was diagnosed on a Monday and on that weekend, I became very sick. So my son was at school and he was in a state soccer competition and this was huge. It was a state knockout game. I was, and it was in Warilda, 20 minutes north of Willoughby. I wasn't well enough to sit in the car for 20 minutes, so I didn't go and I was at home on my own and there was a movie playing on. So I was sitting on the lounge and there was a movie playing called Sweet November and it's about a girl who's got terminal cancer and she has a different boyfriend every month. And this was the November boyfriend and she wasn't getting attached to any of them, but she's getting attached to Mr. November. And I'm sitting on the lounge and I was so sure I was dying. I was getting quite upset with this movie because I was thinking, this is ridiculous. You're dying, but you're going out to dinner. You're going on dates. This is silly. So that was my thought process because I'm thinking I'm dying and I don't feel like eating anything. I don't even feel like drinking. I'm on this lounge. So that was where my headspace was. And so just based on that experience, and it even helped me a little bit. My mother died of breast cancer when I was 17. And I even thought that it helped me with her in a way. I thought, I imagine she felt like this too, mm-hmm. that she knew she was going. And I know it might be different for other people. I don't want to speak for everyone, but for me, it wasn't a terrifying thing at all. It was a slipping away thing. I think it's easy to say, I don't, I'm not afraid of dying. I don't think I'm really looking forward to any period of extreme illness, but the, the dying itself, no, it doesn't scare me at all from my experience. Just having, and I think that gave me the confidence in the book to write about characters who were in that situation. Not too many. I don't write about too many. It's not full of death, but. For Max in particular, I felt I could write from some knowledge of someone who approached it with that perspective. Mm. Without melodrama, without, it's just, Max says, that's what I've got to do now. There's a great book called Being Mortal, written by an American doctor. It's it's an amazing book for anyone to read if they've got older relatives that are looking at how far they go with treatment when you're much older and he explores that. He says that if our life is a story, our life is our story. It's like any worthwhile story. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. And each part's important and the end is important. Right. And that's what I was thinking with Max. He could see, okay, this is where I'm up to. Uh, there's, it was 
oh, this is what I do now, my ending. And yeah. So I think that's true. I think we're starting to talk a little more about the concept of what constitutes a good death and exactly. the advent of euthanasia laws, I think, has brought more of a spotlight to the concept mm. of dying with dignity and mm. some control mm. at the end. Just one thing on that, with my mother, we were so traumatised by her death. I've got three siblings, there were four of us, we adored her. And we, and because we saw that as so traumatic, we didn't talk about it for decades. It was just a no-go topic. We just not, if we went there, we would just open up this world of hurt. And I learned that wasn't a good thing to do. And, and that's part of, the, part of what I was writing about. If you can get past the trauma of the dying, you remember the person and the life you had with them a little bit easier. Anyway, yeah, so. I think we, yeah, a lot of people fear it. And so then mm. you know about mm. it and that only mm. the fear and anxiety. But yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit. And I wonder if your interest in food has some divergent connection to death and food is such a fundamental aspect of life and nourishment and there is a lot mm. of food in this book and in particular a lot of talk about a fabulous lemon tart that Louisa and Claire make for <laughs> the wakes which honestly mm. I could almost taste the lemony. That's of what my son said. My son was reading it. And he said, I can feel oh, the food's in my mouth. I feel the jingle. <laughs> yes, but you haven't, not maybe you personally, but your characters seem to have a special disparagement for frittata, um, mm. describing it as fish without the texture. Isn't it a personal discrimination <laughs> that you have? Or what's wrong with the humble and love an egg? I don't mind an egg. I'm second to someone said, what have you got against frittatas? I just know that if I would think of food, I said, I love things. I love little bites of things. And I just got this thing when the frittatas come out, I think, oh, he goes a frittata. <laughs> I just, I think it's, I love texture. I love the contrast of textures. I do love an omelette, but no. I have to have an omelette on toast. Oh. I need that contrast. You need the pastry. I, I need, yeah, you need I, it. I, I like it when it's all so soft. I think, yeah, so. Can I have some crunch? But how do you explain your interest in food? Is it just something you're interested in and you just tweet or is there a deeper oh, psychological thing? Uh, I'm wondering, I did think about this. I, I hadn't really thought about it that deeply until recently. And then I remembered when my mother died, I was in my bunny years ago. My sister was very close to my sister who's 18 months older than me. She's just the most wonderful person. And she took over the family cooking when mum died. I was doing HSC and I look back and think, why didn't I help her more? But she said I did. I don't know. And up, up until that point, we were a meat and three veg family. My father was diabetic and he was a very strict diabetic. So he controlled, so the food was really, my mo mother was a good cook, but the food was very simple. And my sister took over and she thought, well, I'm not cooking. That's too boring. I'm not cooking that. So she got out this Women's Weekly that in those days had a long box of little recipe cards. So I'd see her going through her little recipe cards and my heart would fill with joy because she cooked the most amazing things. We had like chicken paprika and Spanish steak and all these amazing meals every night of the week. And I look back now and think, was that is that food connection to that it was such a joy in the day when life was so sad that we'd have these meals to look forward to? And so I think maybe it is a really deep-rooted thing for me. My sister ended up being an amazing cook. Her son, 
He's, he's a chef. He worked in a Michelin star restaurant in London. We all, we're all cooks. My whole family, my children, uh, it's just passed down through generations. And then we were remembering, my sister, I remember the other day that my grandmother who grew up in the country, we used to go to her for holidays and she would drive around in her little car with us in the countryside and she'd know everybody who had the best. Okay. We're going here for the tomatoes. We're going there for the carrot. So she knew who cooked the best, who grew the best. So she was into produce. So when I was home with children, I think I needed a creative outlet. Food was it. My poor kids, I was doing gourmet traveler meals every night of the week and the family would sit down and go, can we please have something simple? Can we have spaghetti bolognese? Yeah, what's this? What's this duck business? You keep trying things out on us. So you'd have to call it obsessive. I'd go to bed at night and imagine what I'd cook the next night. I catered to friends' parties, 80 people. I'd say, can I do all the food for your party? Just out of a sheer love for it. And it's beautifully in the context of writing about wakes because Mm. food is quite a crucial element of a wake and it just gives you and it gives these characters just small moments of joy and comfort. They're exactly and connection, grief. And mm. someone has a bite of a lemon tart and it just lifts them momentarily mm. out of that grief and like, oh, this is just absolutely and, delicious. And that's life coming in because it is. to me, food is a huge part of life. It's a, mm. a, and so the book has, they all crept in. I didn't do it deliberately, but all these little joys of life crept in. So good food, good books mm. and the music, mm. there's, the music crept in. Yeah. So there's a Spotify playlist for the book now because the, the publishers yes, made it. Because the women listen to music as they cook mm-hmm. and they have mm-hmm. they choose a different artist depending on mm-hmm. like it might be mm-hmm. an Elton John kind of morning that one of them's feeling is. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. other thing I thought was really interesting in your book, and it comes up a couple of times, is the issue of climate change. And that yes. A few of the people who die in the book are in their middle ages, which is basically the age I am at the moment. And so the Gen X generation who I think through your book, you explain so beautifully the, the guilt, I think, that mm. generation is mm. carrying that we're passing mm. on this load of crap disaster exactly. for our next generation to to deal with. And I wonder if, were you just, were you conscious of putting that into the book or I is it very conscious? In? Okay. No, it was very important. I do feel that guilt. I feel a low level anxiety about climate change. I wanted to put it in the book without being didactic, without lecturing. The book, The Overstory that I refer to, I adored it. I wanted that the children to be saying, how come we know so much and you don't? And this is our, and just a little bit of a, a put in a subtle way to say, because to me, from everything I've read, it's, it, as I say in the book, the solutions are there. It's just this time urgency. And somehow with the government, they don't think we can handle the truth, maybe that, that it is really quite bad already. And it's not talked about enough and the 2% is already locked in and just that sense of time, and, which is also the books about time. And there's a real sense of urgency. We should have a, more of a sense of urgency of time in our, genera- our older generation in terms of climate change, I think, to do the right thing for our children. I think we need to have that as number one. We shouldn't be. When everyone talks about economics with climate change, my feeling is that there won't be an economy. How is that relevant? I know it's relevant to people's lives in terms of affording 
things, but it's so much bigger than that. But anyway, I'm not an expert, but I just wanted to put in that little sense of urgency I feel without just subtly. And yeah, I'm I, glad I, you I, mentioned that because it was important. Yeah. And that song, the Starman song to me, even it, it, the lyrics suited the novel, but also the lyrics where he says, let the children boogie. It's because it's the children that are, are going to have to solve this. And it's not necessarily. I did want to pick up on the music in the book because it is very important. But as you and I know, getting copyright to music lyrics is mm. impossible. But you got around that in a really clever way. So can you talk a bit yes. about your thinking around that and how you practically went about it? I didn't know in the beginning. So when the manuscript went to in my publishing journey, it was read by, I gave it to a professional editor for a reader's report. And she said to me, going, this is going to cost you a fortune because I had a dinner party where they were playing a game with song lyrics. I had Bob Dylan song lyrics, uh, a couple of lines, things like that. I took them all out. And mm. I got around it more just with when I wanted you to feel a song, I talked about the feel of the words or mm. not necessarily paraphrasing, but just the feel of what that those lyrics were saying. And I think the great right. thing is that you can use song titles and as soon you know, that's if you're it. referencing that's a it. really well-known song, that's yep. all you need to do because then exactly. you're wondering in the reader's mind exactly how it sounds. So yes. you can get around it by just alluding to the feel that's of it and the title and that sort of thing. But I thought it was very brave because I know how hard it is and how careful you have to be. Yes. At, at, at one point I had with Mr Tambourine Man, I had Chris and I had the sentence, he walked out into the jingle jangle of the morning and the professional editor said, oh, maybe you'll get away with this, but I took it out. Yeah, I know, um, you have to be so careful. It so is careful. quite restrictive, but for a reason and a justifiable that, reason. Yes, I respect that, but I think I wanted the music in it because it's so emotive. It, yeah, you can watch a movie and... If the, the, it's the music attached that makes you cry, mm. it takes you to that other level. And oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, it would be the poorer for it. But just getting on to the writing process, if you can cast your mind back to when you first started writing this book, how long do you think it took you from writing first words to creating something that you could send to someone to be read? Right. It's really hard for me to answer that. I still wrote it quite part-time for quite a few years. Mm. I seemed to let my family, everything go before the writing. And then for a couple of years while I was writing, I went to work in my husband's business. He needed someone to help him in consulting, so I went and did that. And I didn't write a word while I was doing that. It consumed me a bit. But I think about five years, but the last couple of years I thought, I think I might really have something here. I need to work at it full time and which I pretty much did and then I do suffer a little bit I'm not a perfectionist but I'm a chronic self-editor I just kept editing and I didn't let anyone read it I didn't let my husband read it I had an idea of what I wanted to create I wanted to write a book that felt like a piece of art almost I wanted it to be beautiful and I don't think I wanted anyone to read it till I felt it had the beauty I wanted it to have. So I just kept editing. And by the time it got to the literary agent, she said, it's right to go. I don't need to do anything. Wow. And it went straight out to publishers. And 
my publisher Rebecca said when she got it, it was one of the most edited. It was in such, and I thought, oh, great shape. I probably wow. could have got this happening years earlier. If, but then maybe I would never have been picked up. I knew the difficulty in getting picked up as a debut author too. Mm. I just wanted it. I think that helped my mm. situation that I edited so much. And can you talk me through that? At what point in that process did you seek that? professional editor's feedback. I had a bit of a dream run in terms of what happened. I finished writing, I was at a point where I thought, I think I might be done. And I took my dog to the dog park and a woman I hadn't seen for years, she was the mother of a friend of my daughter's, and I hadn't seen her for years, and she saw me and she went, how's that novel you've been writing going? You know when people say the word novel like you've made up the word? I read a writer say that, like that novel, because it's just so strange that you're writing a novel. And I said, well, actually, I just finished it and I'm not sure what to do with it at this point. And she, her sister's best friend, the author Suzanne Daniel, she wrote Allegra in three parts, great mm-hmm. book. She'd just been published, won the Indie Debut Novel of the Year Award. And I said, oh, do you think I could talk to her? And this beautiful friend connected us. We had this great conversation. And at the end, Suzanne Daniel said to me, what can I do for you? So she was thinking out loud and she said, how about I read it? And the coward in me nearly said, no, don't worry, because I'd given it to nobody. But I thought, okay, I've got to be courageous. So I printed it off and sent it to her. And she started reading it and said she loved the writing. She thought I had some something special. So she advised me to give it to a professional editor. She said it gets a bit dense. And I knew the bit that was getting a bit dense. I fiddled with that. I got a bit of the density out of it and gave it to a professional editor to read and that was Diane Blacklock who's an author and editor great editor mm-hmm. and she loved it and so she gave me a reader's report and I advise a lot of people to do this because when you send it off you only send off the first chapter whereas I paid her to read the whole thing and tell me what do you think and I got a really in-depth report and she said it was commercial she said I think it sits in that sweet spot between lettering commercial and so she was very encouraging and I, it was really uplifting. And lucky for me, she then mentioned it to a publisher at a book launch. And she and I contacted her and she said, this publisher's happy to see the first 60 pages and a synopsis. So I sent that off on a Monday afternoon. And the Tuesday morning, I got an email saying, received it, got lots on my desk, it'll take a couple of weeks, but I will read it. And I thought, great. And then I was in the dog park that afternoon and the email came through and she said, I've read the whole thing this morning, can I see the rest? And I think that was the most beautiful moment of the whole journey. Mm. It was like, oh, and that allowed me to get a literary agent because as soon as you have that sort of positivity from a publisher, it opens mm. the door. Though Suzanne Daniel, I rang her and said, can I use your name with your agent? She had an amazing agent. And she said, no, I'll ring her for you. So this is the generosity of authors. She did that for me and it went from there. That is quite an amazing journey. I can see Mm. that if you put five years of work sporadically but still Mm. across five years, you gave it all that time to marinate in your head. Mm. You obviously Mm. had a really clear vision of how you wanted it to be and you do have a really distinctive voice. I'm just going to read a small section and this is a scene where Chris is at work, he's the doctor, he's in the ED and he's just met Louisa who's come in with a cut finger and he's what 
you've written. He said, he asked her what had happened and off she went, waking him up further. She told him about cutting onions with an extremely sharp knife and not really paying enough attention, about blood being everywhere and not being very good with injuries. As he moved closer to the bed, she apologised for her deep smell of egg. It was now part of her. Its smell was in her pores, in the fabric of her clothes. The taste of it sat in the back of her throat. And then she apologised for talking so much. She didn't usually, but she was feeling edgy, a little bit panicked. He'd guessed that already. Panicky Fs had dotted her conversation in a fairly entertaining way. All in all, he'd had to stifle a few smiles. He made a quick mental note to get her some painkillers, something to settle her. Now, that's just a small part of the book, but I often like to read out sections just so readers get a vibe of what your writing is like. And why I particularly chose that section is because I think it is quite distinctive of your voice. And one Mm. of the things that you do so well is that you slightly break this rule of showing and telling. So the old adage is that you have to show and not tell. But actually, that paragraph is essentially a report of a conversation. We're not hearing the actual dialogue unfold. Breaking that show-don't-tell rule, but it works so beautifully because what you're doing is imbuing that description with Chris's voice. It's his interpretation of the conversation. Is that a really deliberate thing on your behalf or is it just your natural voice? That's how it comes to you. That's a, that's such a good thing you've pointed out and, and such a great question. I think it's a mixture. I think, and the editor did point out to me that I it was breaking a rule, but I I love dialogue, but I love the mixture of dialogue and not dialogue. And it is my style, I but I do love a conversation retold that way. Mm. So it's you're getting most of the conversation, but you're getting it with a little bit of a tone. Yes. So, yes, it, it is deliberate, but it is my style. So that's, yes. I know that I'm doing it. And right. and even when the editor pointed out, I thought, I like the sound of that. I like the feel of it. So I kept to it. So I even do, I break the rule. I think you'll notice in some paragraphs where you would probably put inverted commas, but I've just retold the conversation. But mm. I just think it flows as well. I think it's uh, just a great demonstration how, It's good to know the rules so that you can then break them. And that in writing, I sort of rail against the concept of there being rules because if it works, it works. It works. And we had a I had a major rule rule breaking in the novel. I was informed. And it was there was a fair bit of discussion about it. And it took me a while to have the confidence, but point of views, multiple point of views. Mm. And I would not it doesn't give too much away, but you go into a new point of view, a fair way into the novel and the question was raised is that too late to go into a new point of view because you know that thing with script writing they say you've if you've loaded the gun that's got to be fired and also and you don't bring in a murderer too late in it all those rules so I broke a rule in bringing in a new point of view a little bit late and but it worked and and I got feedback all along the line that far from being jarring it was the copy editor, I think, referred to it as a unexpected delight. But it allowed me to do the things I wanted to do. There is a an unfolding mystery. It allowed me to reveal things mm. in a way that were, was more present. Mm. If I'd revealed it 
secondhand through a conversation, it would have been far less impactful. Yeah. And as an, I did, I've never done a course. I just decided to write. So I didn't know the rules. I just, but I read a lot. I read a lot of literary novels to teach me how to write. And it just was how I wanted to do it. So that's I, incredible. I so you're totally a self taught writer. Totally. Haven't done you're, one oh, that's so interesting. minute of a course. I, don't, wow. I can't really explain it. It was a combination of lack of self confidence in the sense that I thought, oh, what if I turned up and they asked me to write something and they, oh, that's not very good. It, I'm not even in a writer's group. I I also had the sense that I knew my voice. I knew my style. It's the same style I wrote when I was at school. I felt that's my voice. Who's going to teach me to write any differently? And I didn't want them to give me writing assignments. Also, mm. even though it took me so long, I really had this idea of not having much time. And I thought, I don't want to waste time on little writing exercises that don't interest me. I've got to write this novel. So... Mm. That it came from that as well. So there were a lot of reasons I didn't. But I think that they could be very handy. I always knew how it'd start. I always knew and finish. But the middle changed a lot. And I think maybe I would have been a bit of a better planner if I'd done a course. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. You don't know. Don't. Some people do loads of courses and they're still pantsers and they still. That's at the end of the day, we all get to the same destination, but the journey between A and B can be wildly mm. divergent. But um, one one amazing thing in your book is that you have all these incredible endorsements from Sally Hepworth, Jacqueline Maley, Joanna Nell, Natasha Lester, and you have one from the queen of women's fiction, Leanne Moriarty, who describes your book as a truly delightful debut novel, funny, moving, tender and wise. I ate up every delicious word. Leanne that a beautiful? How did that happen? There's nothing like being praised by people that are, that know how to express themselves. <laughs> it, was just, it came out of nowhere. Like the, my publisher sent it through and I sent an email back saying, my heart did something funny then when I read that. <laughs> and she said, so did mine. So generous. The way it happened was my publisher sent the book to Leanne's agent, how they do, but she would get a million books, I imagine. Yes, yes. And, but... I think what happened is, I'm pretty sure what happened is Diane Blacklock, the editor who first read my manuscript, she's a good friend of Leanne's oh. and she really did fall in love with my manuscript and I, she said she raved about it to mm. Leanne. So I think when she saw this pile of books, she noticed the title and pulled it out. I think that's what happened. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, and that then she took the trouble of tracking down the publisher. So she went to a bit of trouble to send the email through, which was just so generous. And it was, yeah, it was amazing to have her love it. That is a pinch me mm-hmm. moment. But the other It was pinch, a pinch me moment. The yeah. other pinch me moment is the fact that even before it was published, I think, your book has been optioned for screen. Now, Yes. What role are you going to play? Any role in that? Are you just happy to <laughs> sign yeah. over the rights and do what you yeah. want? Because it, yeah. it's not only been optioned, but it's been optioned by Bruno Papandrea, who is mm. Australian but a legend in Hollywood. A legend He's and behind so many brilliant adaptations. Mm. But yeah, do you hope to have any role in that, or totally hands off? Well, the way it played out was she. I did an interview with her and two of her producers very early on. It was still a very raw manuscript. She'd read it in a day. She loved it. I was just thrilled by that, to have someone like Bruna Papandrea, she's just amazing, love the book. That was number one thrill for me. So they optioned it. It's still only an option, but we've, but, so she hasn't, 
that taken that that step but she is a powerhouse i'm hoping they will she when she interviewed me she said so they send the manuscript to script writers and the script writers decide whether it's going to be a series or a movie but she was inclined to think it suited a series i did too mm. and then there was a big announcement in america so they optioned it in two late 21 2021 wow. gosh the first options for 18 months and then but there was an announcement before christmas that it was going to be made into a tv series so they may have gone a little down the line i don't know but that's up to her wow. but i was happy to hand it over i want to write novels i don't want to they're in the business of film making films and i trust them and i chose her because i know she's mm. so good mm. so i don't want i said you've got i'm not going to get involved and i don't think you really can but um they said if it was a tv series that they need more content so i'm there as a, a writer which is a bit of a dream for me to be wow. in a writer's room i often watch comedies and think oh what a job to sit in a writer's room and write comedy i've often thought that and so that's my will be my involvement oh, if they take that, it up yeah and that does that yeah. sounds like a dream it's just a i'm a film lover and so it was it's yeah. just such a thrill now, who would you cast as Claire and Louisa? And I've put you on oh. the spot here, so I'm going to give you my ideas and see what you yes, think. So yes. I'm thinking for Claire, Naomi Watts, but someone a bit Ooh, yes. for Louisa, maybe Frances O'Connor, who I think <gasps> brings a bit she more of the quirk and the grish. But have you thought about it? I have been stuck on those two, and I think they're wonderful choices. Mm. really good I've been asked this before and I just I'm a bit stuck on the on on the girls I think it's because I've got them in my head and if she was an actress I would put Hannah Gadsby in as, oh, as, wow. as Louisa oh I would put God, her in yes genius yep she would have the deadpan droll yes yes Louisa thing to a T um, yes if she was an actress I would cast her in terms of Claire yeah Naomi Watts Naomi Watts would be brilliant mm. Mm. I she's think she's, really good. she's beautiful, but potentially the housewife or the mum next door as well. Like mm, I think she can mm. straddle both of that as a naturalist too. You can get Rose Byrne in there. Rose Byrne is oh, a yes. actress. Wow. Rose Byrne could be good. Yeah. And she? That sort of dreamy, dreaminess too, I think. Yeah. yeah. I can see yeah. I can see it all. I can't even and don't even go to Chris because I still No, don't. that's harder. I feel like he's it's harder, is it? Harder. Maybe, maybe oh yes. Yeah. Joel. Joel, yeah. maybe, maybe oh, he's a little it. too gritty. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Definitely one to think about. But tell me, we're just coming to the end of the interview and I have two last questions, mm -hmm. one of which is what's next for you? Is there another book in the pipeline? Yes, yes. I started it while the manuscript was going out. So I'm. it's going to be another big themed book. This one's Life and Death. It's going to be told from grassroots ordinary living but with a big idea to it yeah yes I'm well underway I'm hoping to have that done within the year so right. um, I just love writing I could write to yeah just on the on your love of writing what do you think is at the heart of your writing just a love of words that I had from a very young age I love language mm -hmm. I love conversation I just love crafting a sentence so I said to my husband, I just won't write if it's not entertaining me. It, it, it doesn't have to be entertaining in terms of funny way, but just in terms of what it's saying. Or So it's just a, um, I comes from my father's family were very literary. 
My uncle was a writer. It, it, I think it's just in my blood. I just love it. And I was a voracious reader when I was young. I just, it's just a pure love of words. That love mm. absolutely shines through in this novel. Thank you so much for joining us, Diane, today. And oh, all thank you. I don't even need to wish you luck with this book because I know oh. it's going to oh. do. All I can say is congratulations on a really fun. Thank you so much. I just love talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. (laughs) 